You're listening to the fourth season of Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about liturgical worship and how it can transform your everyday life. I'm Father Yuri Hladio, and I'm joined by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey is the director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto and holds a doctorate in the field of liturgical worship. For our fourth season, Father Jeffrey and I decided to publicly publish a series of episodes which have hitherto been reserved exclusively for the patrons of this show. We'll be publishing them here exactly as they were heard by our patrons. Father Jeffrey and I release special private episodes for our patrons on a weekly basis, so if you like what you hear and you'd like access to much, much more, you can go to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom to become a patron. But for now, we hope you enjoy the public release of this episode. Hello and welcome to all of our viewers. Hello, welcome, Father Jeffrey. How are you? I'm well. How about you? I'm doing well. Are we going to go with our real names today or our character names? Uh, <laughs> there's the question. There is the question. <laughs> well, we are not only going to be the two of us talking as we usually do on our podcast. We're joined today by Father Anthony Perkins, who I'll bring on in just a second. I've actually known Father Anthony for a long time. He knew me when I was a, a bucky young teenager as a camper and then as a... Um, uh, counselor at uh, All Saints Camp, uh, Ukraine Orthodox Church Camp in Emlinton, Pennsylvania. I remember him teaching us uh, a song. Uh, he, he loves hymnography and all these old classic Christian hymns, and he taught us some of those. And I still have one of those memorized. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's uh, from Anthony, Father Anthony. So Perkins. we run out of things to talk about. Well, just it only takes a spark to get a fire going, you know? <laughs> um, so uh, Father Anthony has uh, many talents and skills. He's an academic. He's a pastor. He uh, worked as well in the military. He's he's had his hands in a lot of different uh, projects and a lot of different um, uh, areas of life. And he brings all of those pieces of knowledge together and synthesizes them in a very unique way. And... I thought, since it's so close to Halloween, it might be fun to have an episode about Dungeons and Dragons. And so, without further ado, let me bring on Father Anthony Perkins. Hello, Father. How are you? Hey, thank God. All is well. How are y'all? <laughs> Doing quite well. Yeah. For, first of all, before we begin, Father, would you give uh, maybe uh, a little bit of a better intro for yourself than than I did? and uh, and And maybe adding into there a little sprinkling of the D and D part of why we'd want you to come. <laughs> oh, come yeah, on. sure. Right. So, um, I grew up, uh, with a love of, of story and song and, uh, you know, had some favorite authors early on, like in my early teens. And that's about when an older brother of my best friend, uh, introduced us to Dungeons and Dragons. So that was when I was maybe 11 or 12. And we just really took to it. And that's that's when, you know, early on basic edition, it was in a box set, you know, dungeon morphs and stuff. And so it's been part of my imagination uh since then, right? The and just it's part of my some of my deepest friendships, right? So it's inseparable from from those things. Um grew up in Georgia and uh, went to school at the University of Georgia, got married while I was a student, and then I joined the Army. That's another. I spent 20 years in the reserves, uh, was mobilized for a while after 9-11. And as an academic, um, I like to say as a theologian, I'm a pl- pretty good political scientist, right? So I, I do teach at seminary. Um, I'm a 
generalist, I would say. And my uh, focus as an academic is on uh, political parties and also now more on ritual, right? So that's what I'm running a dissertation on is the relationship between ideology and ritual. But going back to Dungeons and Dragons, at every stage along the way, there's this, there's like a, a radar that you have and you can identify pretty quickly the people who play or don't play or who would be interested in. And like, even when I was in the army, we would not in the field, but when we were in the office, we would have a regular lunch game going. Right. And now thanks to techno technology, I'm in a campaign with those same guys that, you know, we were, we were serving together 20 years ago. So yeah, a lot of fun. And I mean, we're going to get to how it, how it informs or, and is informed by theology and, and things like that. Um, I've got four kids and we also um, are, have an on again, off again campaign or two going on. Um, and I've, I've been with them as a player and as a game master. And in general, we're, we're a gaming family. So I grew up playing cards. Whenever the Perkins family would get together, we'd play Pinochle, right? Which in Northern Pennsylvania, that's a thing. So um, did you grow up playing Pinochle? Either of y'all? No, I did not. No. Okay. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd love to trace the roots of that, why it was that we played Pinochle and not something else, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So so that, that gaming, the communal aspect of gaming, the storytelling, all that is very much a part of, of family culture and the family rhythm. Mm -hmm. Well, before we dive into the topics at hand, um, I just want to remind the audience that if you're watching live, you can type in any questions concerning whatever you want on the topic, and uh, I will field them uh, to Father Anthony, and, and then we'll see what happens. So you're always welcome to just go over in the chat, type in your question. And also a reminder that this, what you're watching now, is the first half. So this is the public half. If you want the, the, the private half, you can become a patron, but more on that later. Um, one of the things I find interesting that you mentioned, Father Anthony, is that you're now writing your dissertation on, on ritual and, and sort of, I guess, how ritual kind of enacts what we believe. And, and I think often the divine liturgy is a place where we come and we enact the, those things that we profess to believe. But actually, dungeon, well, Dungeons and Dragons seems to be a place where you're not necessarily acting out what you believe. You're maybe experimenting or things like that. But I mean, before we just dive into that, do you want to maybe describe what it might be like if somebody joined a game, like sitting around a table, like what's going on there? Yeah. So there are different levels, just like, like there are when you show up at church, right? There are things that, that you notice that are maybe the superficial aspects of it. Right. And that would be um, the, at the beginning of the campaign, there's a creation of characters. So there would be, uh, talk amongst the different players uh, about what sorts of character they wanted to play, right? And ideally, you have some kind of a mix that that complements each other, right? So a mix of you know brawn and and magic and healing. Uh, so clerics and magic users and and fighters, for example, and a good sneak. If you have a big enough party, it's good to have a sneak in there as well, a burglar. And so you'd, you'd see that, right? And then along with that, there would be the rolling of of some some dice. These are our our chance 
this is how we we do probability in the game. And the what would be going on there is that the characters would develop. So the players have these characters, like an avatar that they're going to play. And depending on the game system, you know, you, you have different limitations. But in general, you're, you are fleshing out that character, how strong they are, how smart they are, how wise they are, how dexterous or agile they are, how resilient they are, and then how charismatic they are. And that combination um, affects how you interact with the game, both in terms of the mechanics. So a strong character might do more damage if they were swinging something against a monster than someone who was weaker. And so it affects the mechanics, but it also affects the personality, right? And then along with that, depending on the game system, you also pick whether you want to be an elf or you want to be, you know, whatever other construct is available. And so this is a, a really fun part. This is for many people. This is the best part because it engages the imagination in an in exciting way. You know, it's um, it's that act of creation. Right. And and you're like you said, you're trying it on. Right. Uh, and you may have an idea of what that character is going to be. And you may be maybe amalgam of different characters that you've read or seen in movies. Right. But then it ends up becoming its its own thing over time as it relates to other characters and the situations that are put. So at the early stages, that's what it looks like. Right. It's the creation of these these characters that you're going to play. Then once you begin, you have someone who is the game master. And in Dungeons and Dragons, we typically call them the dungeon master. And they will have created a world, whether they bought it or, you know, came up with it on their own, or they combined different stories they liked. And a general idea of what sort of things the characters are going to face, right? And you can buy these prepackaged, or you can make them up on the fly or whatever. But in general, that person is the one who is responsible for uh, acting out all of the non-player characters, whether they're monsters, whether they're tavern keepers, whatever it is, they go into that role and interact with the players in their role. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, this isn't, you were, you were talking about live action role playing earlier. This isn't that we're not dressed up. We're not swinging foam swords or anything like that. But the the closest we get to that is that we actually, say the words that we're going to say. And, you know, you tend not to, you, you tend to say things like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to ask the tavern master if they have any information about, you know, the orcs in the valley and a good DM will say, Mm-mm, no, you will use words, use your words. <laughs> yeah. And and so that's what you'd see. You'd see this um, conversation and another um, very big part of the game is the side talk and the the inside jokes that develop. So every gaming group develops its own sort of culture with its own sort of, um, you know, inside jokes. And, and, you know, some of it overlaps by everywhere. Like I bet you every group jokes about looks like meats back on the menu. Right. And these, these other things, these uh, popular things from popular movies. Mm, yeah. So, so, the theme for today is Dungeons and Dragons and the Divine Liturgy. So I guess one place to start is what do you see maybe a game of Dungeons and Dragons? So both these things are sort of enacting narratives, right? We go to the Divine Liturgy and we enact the story of God and our participation in that story. And Dungeons and Dragons is sort of, um, it's 
discovering a narrative and, and living in that story. What do you see as being related in those two settings? And what do you see as being different? So what's related and what's different? Right. Okay. So at the superficial level, everything's different, <laughs> right? There, you are not in sacred space. You are in, you're typically around a table or sometimes you'll be playing over the internet, right? So it, that's very different, right? And you'll have food out. <laughs> so I guess that's different and the same, right? I have, I've rarely seen a group play for long without having, you know, their favorite snacks. You need the food. You need the right. food. And in liturgy, there's no side talk. That's not, that's, so there are a lot of differences. Depends what church you go to, I guess. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Have you been behind the icon screen, Father? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So at the superficial level, you know, there, there are a few similarities, right? Like they're all people and clearly there are rituals involved, right? So, um, the rituals are different and they have different purposes. Okay. Um, but you can tell that there's, there's some behavior that's stylized, right. Which is something that we have in uh, certainly in our liturgy and, you know, we don't really have icons, but oftentimes we'll, we'll have these um, little miniatures. So this is a representation of the bard that I'm playing in a campaign right now. Right. So he's got his his uh, guitar and he's he's doing some magic with one hand. Looks exactly like you, Father. It does. Look <laughs> look at that. Except he has hair. <laughs> so it's what I see in the mirror, but maybe not what other people see. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, but at a deeper level, let me describe some of the real things that that are similar. One is that there there is community involved. Right there, there is this connection because both are speaking to this ontological reality of connection, and in the divine liturgy, that's the highest level. You know, that is the perfect way to do it to get that that horizontal and the the vertical uh, union. But it's also true among gaming; there has to be, you know, a shared communication shared a shared narrative right and in a game it's more tactical right we need to communicate well and we need to complement one another um that's with an e i think instead of with an i we need, and so i need to listen and know you so that i can so that we can better serve the needs of the party together um and so and that is done writ large in the divine liturgy, right? That That is how we learn really how to do that well and how we do it well is as we participate in the divine liturgy. There's more give and take in uh, a gaming session, right? So it's more, it's more active uh, in terms of, of engaging each other in, in conversation, unless I guess you're in some places and sometimes. <laughs> and another thing is that the, the words aren't set, right? So the, the liturgy, the, one of the things I love about the liturgy is that it's the perfect words from start to be start to end. Um, except in the middle where some knucklehead in my parish gets up and gives a homily, 
right? That's, that's the only time where it might go sideways. But the rest of it, you're like, yeah, this is perfect. <laughs> that is not the case in a gaming session. So, I mean, the, there's a trope of it, right? Where the game master spends all this time researching and developing all these aspects and just completely, the, the characters do something completely unexpected that just makes that go all go out the window, right? Um, so th- that part's different, right? Um, whereas in a divine liturgy, what I find is that I can let down my active imagination, right? And just open myself up to the experience. If I did that in the gaming section, second session, something would happen. I would be able, I would see, you know, with the, perhaps with a little bit of the noetic eyes, I'd be able to see the, the connection among the people playing, you know, and I would enjoy that. Right. Um, but it wouldn't be a very good gaming session if I was supposed to be, you know, actually doing things and describing my actions and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have so many questions, but Father Jeffrey, I want to open the door for you if you want to jump in with anything. No, no, carry on for now. I'm really enjoying this reflection on on the kind of points of continuity and discontinuity between uh, Divine Liturgy and, and Dungeons and & Dragons. I mean, my mind is going to all kinds of... Um, you know, deep connections in terms of the the kind of narrative nature of our kind of understanding of reality about being story beings and that sort of thing. So I think we'll get there, but I, I'm carry on for the year. Yeah. So, so we're, we are constructing a reality together and the game master yeah. has this idea of what the world looks like, but it also, it adjusts to the needs and the expectations of the players as well. Right. So even, even the contours of the world are malleable. Right. Mm-hmm. And that that's how I experience life through the divine liturgy. Right. It mm-hmm. is I am being reshaped. My understanding of the world is being reshaped by the way that that I am living this liturgy together with with my community through those perfect words, you know, with, uh, you know, all the noetic effects and stuff. It's um, that that's a that's another strong similarity. That's that's the primary touchstone right but here let me let me give another uh red herring right so another thing to say well it's you know it's uh one of the similarities is that you know you've got clerics in both right yeah (laughs) no like for like you can you can play as a cleric as like your character can be a cleric in dungeons and dragons right yeah Yeah. and and there are crossover jokes like you know when you when you get your um your gold cross you know people if if both people are players they'll say you know did you get your third level spells right (laughs) and and, you know Uh a little bit naughty though right so for me it is It, it doesn't cross over like that one of the things that you're and uh this is one of the places where people can get uncomfortable, right? Because in the world that's created, there's a cosmology, right? And people have different levels of comfort with cosmologies that are not directly orthodox, right? How comfortable are they? They may be comfortable reading Tolkien, right? With this wonderful cosmology that is informed by orthodoxy, Christianity, but, you know, isn't you know, they're just reading a story, but when they're actually engaging their imaginations in a world that is populated by, you know, whatever the pantheon is, and you've got clerics in the party, perhaps that are, 
you know, priests of, of one of those, it, you have to be careful with that. Right. 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 Like, because there can be characters, like you can be a cleric of a particular God and use the power of that God in your spells and things like that. So you're sort of, you know, you're not just a soldier with a spear who's going into battle. You are um, calling upon the power of a deity that is not explicitly <laughs> right. Um, yeah. and, God and, himself. Right. So you could be playing a dwarven character and there's a dwarven pantheon, right? Um, ancestor based, perhaps, where, you know, you're you're drawing on the power of that ancestor. Right. Um, so in the games that I play, I don't I don't go into that as much. Right. One of the things in the 80s that, that scared parents, there was a reaction against the rise in popularity of Dungeons and Dragons. Right. And one of them was when you opened up the player's handbook and you looked and you said, oh, OK, there are there are wizards in this. Uh Oh, and then wizards have spells. Right. So things like a first level wizard can do light. Right. You can make light, light appear in darkness. Right. You can uh, put sleep on a few people. You know, and then it, the spell book in the in the player's handbook, it descri- describes the tactical effects, right? This is how many people you can put to sleep. This is what their defense is to see if they do or don't go to sleep and so on. But there's also a part that we never noticed that said, uh, like, casting ingredients, right? And that's what, you know, critics focused on, like, oh, these these kids are learning to do, you know, magic with components, right? Which that, you know, that, that would be a concern. I would, I would be kind of concerned of that as well, but we weren't into that. Yeah. So the, so you have these components uh, because there was that scare that happened. And, and I guess one thing that I've interacted with some of this, some of the, I've like looked into some of the criticism of, of D and D at that time. And a lot of the ways that it was painted is, okay, you have like a group of four or five people get into a room, put on their robes and start bringing out these items and actually almost participate in something that would look like a seance in order to cast a spell in this fake world. Um, Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, the chick track is wonderful at this. I mean, that's amazing. They made a movie out of it. Yeah. Right. A satirical movie, but they satirical made a movie, movie out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, what, what you really end up with is, you know, at least with, you know, teenage boys, you get the, the typical kind of, you know, hard my language, fart jokes and, you know, ribbing. Right. It's it was nothing at all like that. It was very sophomoric. Um, but some people, you know, I, I remember there was a, a kid um, who he clearly had some some mental illness, right? And the way that he expressed that illness was using terms from Dungeons and Dragons. And so, you know, for him, I, so I can see how parents would be concerned. And then, you know, to the extent people really went down to steam in steam tunnels to to do this kind of thing, or really led them to do seances or something, I don't know why it would. There's nothing about seances in dungeons and dragons right i mean it really is a tactical game you see five orcs coming down the road 200 yards away what do you do right it's you know so it's not about worshiping 
false gods or coming up with, you know, components for spells. It's really about what kinds of actions are going to best allow us to overcome this, this given tactical situation. So that being said, say you're in that party and the, 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 the dungeon master is narrating that there are these orcs that are, you know, coming down the hill at you and he gives you the, he opens the window. What do you do? Mm-hmm. So, and you might be a wizard who decides, well, I'm going to cast a spell. And then mm-hmm. the dungeon master says, use your words. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to like enact casting a spell. Right. So then, you know, we would, <laughs> we didn't take it that far, but yeah, you'd say, okay, I raised my right arm and I, um, I cast magic missile, you know, mm-hmm. and because uh, magic missile, that's the, the magic user spell. It doesn't do much damage, but it always hits and it's available to beginning mages. So that's the one magic missile. Um, and then, you know, there's also violence, right? Yeah, which is, which is also, does that go against our, our, um, our morality, our ethics, you know, because if you're fighting orcs, <laughs> it was rare when you would when you would try to figure out if the orcs were good or evil, because at least early on, there was the assumption that monsters were evil. Right now, it's more subtle because our culture is more subtle. Right, so now you're always trying to figure out, OK, this could this dragon could actually be a potential ally or this orc could just be misunderstood. You know, so so it, it changes the the the, the, the gameplay. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, depending on who you're playing with. Now, there mm-hmm. are still some players who, for them, yeah, orcs are always evil. And that can be built into their character, um, you know, their mm-hmm. character's personality. To, to bring it back to ritual. So in those criticisms of D&D, one thing that I think would give people the heebie-jeebies would be imagining that there are very strong ritual aspects to what's going on at the table has have, has that been your experience and does, is that normal for D that there's these sort of formalized right. rituals yeah so the rituals at a, at a D table are uh rolling the dice that's that's the main ritual mm-hmm. right and and it's you know you just <laughs> and then you throw it on the table mm-hmm. right um so that's what i meant by ritual there you're not doing any other weird things. There are no cards involved. You're not tarot reading or anything like that. Um, it really is just dice and the dice are based on probabilities. That's all you're using the dice for is because there's a certain probability based on your ability level and the armor class, the, <laughs> the, the thing you're fighting, there's a probability that you're going to hit and what that hit, what kind of damage that would do. So that's, that's the ritual. Um, the physical ritual, the rest of it is conversational rituals. Right. Mm-hmm. And and in there, just as if you watch, if you are an astute observer of the liturgy, um, you know, you can learn orthodoxy's ecclesiology just by watching it. Right. You, you can figure out, you know, the different roles and so on. And it's that's true of a game as well. So that is ritualized. Right. So you're going to have a party leader and they just kind of arise. Right. Who's going to be the party leader? And, you know, what the, the, the sneak in the party, the, the burglar in the party is going to have another role, 
right? So that's also a part of the ritual. Same for the cleric, same for the mage. Um, and they all take a part, and those are kind of stylized, right? Just like my role as a priest in the liturgy, it's stylized. It's And it's not, you know, I, I, I bet you I, if you measured the tenor of my voice, I bet you I don't speak the same. I certainly, when I'm liturgizing, I'm not using this this voice, right? Um, and even when I'm preaching, I'm not because I'm trying to project a bit. So all of these are, are what, what I mean by little r rituals. So it's not just the big sacramental things. So it's just these, these habitual ways of doing things, of interacting with others and with interacting with, uh, with matter. Mm. We do have a question from uh, one of our viewers. Cam Hay asks, I'd be interested in where, or maybe how is better, you draw the line. Sure, D&D is fine. What about different Halloween costumes, Ouija boards, etc.? Is it when you start inviting bad spirits into it? Yeah, uh, that's, yeah, Ouija boards are way off limits um, just because they're sold by Milton Bradley in the game section. It's a completely different deal. There's, and, and same goes for tarot cards. And even if you call them angel cards, you know, we, we don't do divination. That, that isn't the way that we relate to uh, the noetic realm. That's not the way we w- relate to um, unseen spirits, good or mm-hmm. bad. Right? So, so I mean, I guess where's the how in that? Because if you're a if you're a D and D mage and you are casting spells based on a cosmology, you're basically participating in a spiritual realm that is a different than. The, isn't that the same as yeah, great doing question. a Ouija board or tarot card if, reading? If it okay, so the answer is it could actually be. I think it rarely is, but always intention and imagination matter. What is it that this person is actually, you know, doing? And I compare it though to someone who's writing a story. Right, you can write a story that even has bad people in it, right? And is that, what is that going to do? What is the, the effect of that on your spiritual life? Well, it could be devastating if you're not careful. It really could be. If you write a convincing bad person, that means that you are able to enter into somehow, you know, the, the mind of that bad person or person who does bad things. And, you know, you, you, you see it with method actors. You know this better than I do, right? The how it it can it can carry on as as they try to get rid of that that part. So I think you do have to have to be careful to, with that. And you know, you know, one of the things that I do is I watch to see, you know, are the other players do they have a clear, are they able to distinguish between themselves and their character? And there are you know books written about where that that line has has collapsed, right? One of them, I remember when I was a teenager, it was called Hobgoblin. And this, um, this D and D player got obsessed with his, his character, Brian Baru, and, um, you know, couldn't, couldn't separate the two. So if, if that's the case, if you have that kind of a, a strong sympathetic mind, then, you know, just just play fighters and paladins, right? It's don't why why invite that in? And I discourage anyone from playing evil characters or even from playing, <laughs> um, you know, like chaotic neutral characters will drive the party crazy, 
but you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's no fun having a trickster in your party. <laughs> You're a true trickster. <laughs> Just destroys mm-hmm. everything. But yeah, it's a serious, it's a serious, uh, it is a concern. Um, and there is a very clear line of things that you can't do, but even on the list of things that you can do, they can be done in an unhealthy way. Right. So you could play D and D in an unhealthy way. You can play monopoly in an unhealthy way. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, ha- I have, Oh yeah. My, <laughs> my kids won't play monopoly with me. <laughs> uh, but, but again, back to the example of writing a story, right? It, it, bring similar temptations to that. The difference is that you're, you're telling a story in cooperation with others, right? So there are some checks on it. Um, people will call you on it if you're in a good group, right? If you're getting too serious, you're going to get heckled. So, uh, but uh, I would, I would love to, to talk to someone who's a, who's an actual writer like uh, Deacon Nicholas Kotar and, and find out, you know, how, how do they deal with the temptations that come with writing uh, a, an, an evil character, right? Because mm-hmm. he has this, he does a, a Baba Yaga that's really well done. You're like, how did you do that? And he did it because he has, he has a great imagination and he's, he knows folk stories very well. Um, but when he put it on for his interactions with the other characters, how did that, how did that affect him? Um, and you know, y'all as priests, you know, um, what this can be like just in regular relations, because we are called to not just to, to listen so that we can figure out a plan of treatment or something. We're listen we're listening to know, to know the, the other person. And that can, that can take us through some pretty uncomfortable places sometimes, you know, go ahead, father Jeffrey. Yeah. I was just going to, I mean, the, we've lived through a long cultural time now where stories have been, you know, marginalized, right? I mean, the, the, ever since, you know, age of enlightenment forward stories are, are, you know, they're at the, the lower end of human tradition and knowledge and so forth. We privileged kind of discursive, rational, propositional knowledge and, and so forth. I think, you know, we live in a time, and I see this, you know, in my own kids, that, you know, a lot of people have no real experience of story, of narrative, right? That, you know, they, they get most of their information as data, you know, little bits and pieces here and there. They learn things in school or they they learn things on a job or, you know, they're on the internet, they're acquiring knowledge and everything. And I, there's been a kind of long descent of human beings, you know, away from, you know, kind of being able to properly cope with story and narrative. And everything. It's very different, you know, before that, because, you know, people just in, you know, indwelled cultures where storytelling was so normal, right? Whether it was in song or epic poetry or whether it was in grand narratives and, and so forth. So people were able to navigate, I think, those spaces. You know, you could listen to epic hero stories or gods and and uh, demons and whatever without necessarily somehow slipping into some sort of identification with them. But you knew kind of how to navigate that that whole piece. And we also, at the time, knew 
actually how the divine liturgy worked actually in, in, in the same sort of way. You, you kind of indwelt God's story, but even the divine liturgy and our experience of that has been, you know, reduced to kind of data. Right. And you notice the kind of things that got suppressed over the last couple hundred years tended to be all the narrative elements, you know, where things got truncated or chopped and changed. It was the story that was kind of lost. So, I mean, there's almost this kind of larger project that we have as human beings now to kind of reacquaint people with narrative tradition, with how stories work, you know, and whether it is through games like Dungeons and Dragons or just better familiarity with folk tales and fairy tales and, you know, the kind of deep, you know, uh, things that are kind of probably in our collective subconscious, right? You know, the all, all those kind of deep myths and, and archetypes and, and everything. So few people are actually engaging, you know, with those properly. And I suppose it puts people at a particular kind of risk, you know, when a powerful story does come along that they can be kind of I don't know, taken away by it or, or become unhealthily, you know, connected to it. Whereas, you know, properly speaking, we should have been raising people who, who knew how to kind of interoperate with stories. So I'm, I'm all about encouraging people to get access to more stories, whether you're watching really good dramas on, you know, films or whatever, whether it's through plays or music or, or indeed through, through kind of gaming uh, traditions and everything. I think it, it, it's something we've, we've lost a lot of our humanity somehow by becoming disconnected from this and hearing Father Anthony talk about, you know, all of these kind of aspects, it's kind of reinforcing that idea, I think, uh, that, that, I've, that I've had. But um, I mean, I don't know what your own, you know, kind of sense of that is and whether that does connect to some of these kind of psychological issues that people are having. I mean, just generally, the, the, all the anxiety that's about today, for me, that's yeah. all about people not really knowing the story that they live in. Amen. And kind of being kind of forced to kind of create something of themselves without reference yes. to archetypes oh, yeah. and myths and grand narratives like the story of God. For right. Oh, that's so, so well said. Yeah. Without, without that, without knowing our story, right. Even as you figure out the details without knowing your story and how it ends, right. You are face to face with the chaos. Hmm. Right. And that's, that's overwhelming. That's overwhelming. So encouraging people to know their stories. And yeah, our, our appreciation for and relation to story is different now than it was a generation ago and much different than it was, you know, a millennia ago. I, I have no doubt about that. I know that my relationship with stories has changed just in the last 15, 20 years as, you know, I've started to read more online. My ability to, to stay with the narrative is decreasing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, especially with difficult texts like academic texts. I noticed the difference between now and when I first did academia 20 years ago, 25 years ago, very different. And we as a culture, we've lost that as well. And uh, so in addition to the points, points that you made, I would just say, you know, because we don't have not just a sense, the muscles to understand and, and react properly to story. We don't have a sense of our own, tell us our own part in this in this story right the story the one that that we live in the divine liturgy right described so wonderfully in the anaphora of, of saint basil right um we need to make sure that everyone understands that this this is what's going on here this is the cosmic adventure right and and this is this is your role in it and um, you know, and, and empower them to be, you know, 
to be the the hero, the, to be the the character that they were called to be within within that story. Um, and you can see a longing. I mean, look at the the movies that have been most popular recently. I mean, the Marvel series, right? Just why did it go so crazy? It wasn't just the effects and the nice costumes, right? It was it had these these archetypes and. You can argue about what, you know, underlying agendas and so on like that. But the reason people are attracted to that and the Lord of the Rings movies and things is because of, you know, storytelling. This is, uh, you know, the the myths that are involved, the big tropes, you know, the underdog overcoming the, you know, the... I mean, Captain America is my favorite, right? So the the person who never gives in and then has the power to overcome. That's That's awesome. Right. So there's there's still a longing for it, but you can't go from zero to 60, you know, in a flash. And I, I do think that worship is a huge part of giving us that intuition for um, what's going on. And then also what the the story, capital T, capital S is and what our part is in is in it. Now, for me, um, I had I to the extent that I. I resonate with the divine liturgy. That resonance is deeper because of the journey that I took to it. And the fact that it has involved uh, these great, going through these great mythologies, Tolkien, Zelazny, you know, the, these big fantasy writers, um, because they created these, these ideas, good versus evil, sacrifice, these things that, you know, you see in Harry Potter, the Harry Potter series, Right. And and so when you get to the divine liturgy and the story that that it is living, helping us to live in, um, you you have those writ large. You have the the absolute type of that, of which the other things are just derivative. And so that's part of what is going on around that gaming table is we are we are playing with those derivatives. Right. We are, um, you know, the shadow puppets are nothing. Right. They, they are something. And they also create a longing, you know, and I, I know people who are disappointed, you know, I have friends like this. They're like, man, if only this stuff was real. Hmm. Well, for the Christian, you're, you're like, ah, oh, no, I don't it want is. that to be real. <laughs> this is even better. Right. Hmm. And we just don't have a sense of, you know, the, the magic, so to speak, the power that God has given to us, you know, his, his stewards, his imagers on earth and knowing those fantasy stories helps me understand how not only how that magic works, but also how it can be, how it should be applied, how it can be misapplied, how it can be understood, how it can be misunderstood. All right. Because that's, those are common story. Those are common part narratives within fantasy literature. So we have about two and a half minutes left in the public live stream. And I do have one more question from the audience for you, Father Anthony. But before we do that, um, I just want to let those people who are watching know, and if you're watching later, not live, um, that uh, me and Father Jeffrey run half of our show um, publicly, half of it is private. So if you want to join our private community, you can go to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom here i'll put that up on the screen patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom and you can support us uh, on a monthly basis um and you will get a whole lot of content me and father jeffrey release a, a half hour episode every single week uh in addition to our public show as well so lots lots to go and you'll get the entire backlog of a full year we've been doing this for over a year now so uh that's that's a lot of fun 
Uh, also, Father Anthony, um, I'm going to continue in the private episode to ask you a bit more about Cam's question about tarot cards and Ouija boards, because I, I, I want to push you a, a little bit on that. Um, so, Cam, uh, hold on tight. You'll, you'll, uh, uh, I'm sure it'll, you'll be happy with uh, Father Anthony's answers there. Also, I did do a poll for our patrons to see what they wanted to ask you about in the private uh, <laughs> podcast. Um, so it looks like ghosts and spirits... <laughs> is one thing that we want to talk about in the private podcast. So again, if you're watching patreon.com slash. Oh, I can't wait. Those are some of my favorite (laughs) things. Y'all really want to become a Patreon supporter so you can listen to this. Perfect. Um, Okay. Here it is. Uh, Last question for the public side from Anthony. Would there be anything inherently wrong with reading or watching a story where the protagonist would probably be considered under normal circumstances, the villain? I think we chatted a little bit about this uh, already, uh, but this goes along with the metaphor that you were using father Anthony about writing the story. Right. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll let you take it from there. Yeah. These are, um, I, I think as long as you don't lose yourself. Right. So one of the reasons why those stories work well, so in a healthy way is because you, you can sense the disconnect, you know, you see someone who is uh, doing good deeds despite, right? Despite these, these character flaws, but also you have a sense of how much better it would be if they, they repented, they changed their life and, and lived better. And sometimes they never, you know, they never do that. And that's not part of the storyline. And I think when, when a, a mythology glories in uh, coarseness, for example, I don't, I, I don't enjoy that. I think that if I watched some of that, it would um, it would probably be tip me down to a lower level. Uh, but every once in a while, you you can learn things by reading about you know villains and and getting kind of inside how they work. What's the motivation? What does that look like? What's the worldview look like? And why is it that that character can't snap out of it? And understanding that you know that's going to help you be a better pa- pastor of your neighbor. Um, it, but it, it really does depend on the writing because some of the writings is just designed to glory in the blasphemy. And that's, I don't think that's appropriate. Well, thanks so much, Father Anthony. Thank you very much, Father Jeffrey. Thank you to our viewers. Again, patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom if you want to get access to the second half. Uh, it's currently 8.16 Eastern time at 8.30. We'll go live on the private podcast. And if you're watching this uh, later, then... That's fine, too. Uh, Anthony sends, says, thank you, fathers. Thank you very much, Anthony. And yeah, we'll see you all soon. And we are back. Welcome, Father Anthony. Welcome, Father Jeffrey. Thank Did you. Did you have a chance to play a quick D&D game during the break? <laughs> we went and rolled some dice. Yeah, we did. I, I talked to my live studio audience to get some feedback on things that I had said, some corrections. So. Yeah. Um, okay, well, welcome to the patrons that are watching live. As usual, you can type in your questions or comments into the chat and we will discuss them here. Um, as promised, I do want to bring up again one thing that Cam brought up. Actually, I want to bring up a couple of things. One of them is costumes and, and wearing costumes for Halloween. And, and what does that mean about participating in a narrative, right? If you go as a witch, you know, all that stuff. Um, but let's go back to Ouija boards and tarot cards, which... Um, 
you immediately said that's the line, right? Like there was a, it was, there was kind of a definitive. Yeah. Over um, the far over yeah, the line. Right. And uh, when compared with D and D and, and I think part of it was D and D is a game and can offer you and can, is very, the line is very clear between you and what's actually going on there. And there's, Whatever we we don't have to rediscuss what we did, um, but I do know people who have used and I'm assuming still play play with Ouija boards and tarot cards, um, and they play with them, right? Um, it is uh, f- for them. It is um, it's a game, right? It's it's a fun way of interacting with friends, and I'm wondering because I I also think that it's over the line. But I can't necessarily put my finger on exactly exactly why it is so different than than say an yeah. experience of D and D, and maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So, and y'all jump in at any at any time. Y'all mm-hmm. y'all know this stuff as well. And I want to use just the example of D and D just as kind of a, a touchstone, right? So, in D and D, there may be a cosmology with with a pantheon of of little g gods, right? But the game master is the one that is playing that role like they would in a book, right? But instead of writing words out in a book, they're, they're saying them themselves. There's, they're not, there's no attempt to invoke. There's no attempt to have indwelling any of this stuff. Then there is no expectation on the part of the players that they are interacting with anyone, but a game master who is, you know, playing a part, right? That's it. Um, that is not the case with, with tarot. That's not the case with Ouija. So, and, you know, the, the background of this is that uh, the, the stuff's real, right? We have a, there is a no kidding cosmology in this no kidding world, right? And it, it does have little g gods, right? That, you know, can be invoked to your, you know, damnation. I mean, to your, uh, it, it can mess you up. Right. This is why you don't go there. And we have stories of saints who, as they were becoming saintly, fell into what we call prelist, right? In the, the Slavic tradition, you know, the spiritual delusion, uh, because they had, you know, maybe mistaken uh, a demon for an angel, right? In the case of Saint Siloan, right? And so the, it's, it's serious, right? And Ouija and Tarot are set up intentionally as tools of divination, which are prohibited to Christians. You know, it was a, it was a pro- prohibition from the very beginning. Um, and there, it wasn't because, you know, oh, it's just silly. It's a waste of time. They don't work, you know, or it can create the wrong imagination about, you know, what's good and what's bad. No, it's, it's prohibited um, because it, it can work and it can work um, and turn that, entertainment into you know a, a grease slope to hell right it's um it's not it's not good and i have a friend who spent years working with the warrens um who are you know the preeminent new england ghost hunting family they're the ones with the amityville horror and stuff and he he would describe how so many of these cases something like that had been a, a cause of the beginning of these experiences you know, experimenting with Ouija because Milton Bradley put the game on the shelves, right? It's fundamentally different. The, how, how Ouija is set up than like Monopoly. It's completely different. 
Monopoly, you're interacting with other people. Ouija, you're working with other people to divine, right? To get in touch with. And that's prohibited. And, you know, we have stories like the, the Witch of Endor, right? Where, where Saul, after driving all of the necromancers, all of the witches, all of the seers out of <laughs> the land, then decides he needs to talk to one so that he can, you know, uh, and, and talk to Samuel. And, you know, something happens when the Witch of Endor does her incantations. And it wasn't good for, for anyone involved. So that's that's my main point is that there there is a underlying reality and how we interact with that is very important. And the structure of a game is is horizontal. Right? It's um it there there can be sin involved, right? If there's manipulation or you know something like that, but there's there's no attempt to reach into the the noetic realm. Right. And, and call back information or get some kind of hidden knowledge. That's that's never healthy, whether it's done through mechanical means like like tarot or something or whether it's done by ayahuasca. Right. Or some kind of, of psychological uh, fix. Um, so. So, yeah, huge difference. Now, could D&D become that kind of thing? Uh, not if you're playing by an established rule set. Right. Even with, I had a, a fun conversation. My, uh, some, some of my kids are, are listening and uh, my oldest, Nick, he's a mythologist. So he's a writer and he's also uh, scientifically trained, right? He's a physician assistant. And uh, he pointed out that components, you know, we were having a conversation about how components, they can just be a way to explain how the magic system works. Right. So if you read the, the Dresden files, have you read the Dresden books? Um, by um, by Jim Butcher. This is, um, he combines all of these mythologies into modern Chicago, right? And he has this uh, Chicago detective who is also able to manipulate um, using, you know, magic. And he has a magic system. And all of the good books will have, you know, a way that that magic works, whether it's very subtle as it is in Tolkien, or whether it's through manipulative magic, like in Harry Potter or something. And it, it can be done in a way where it's just tactical. It's just like, you know, uh, alchemy without the demonology part associated with it. Right. So you have, you know, you use something that's like something else in order to bring it about, you know, uh, anyways, where, in order for that to happen in a D&D game, for invoking spirits to happen in a, in a D&D game, it would have to go off the rails and take on this kind of explicit divinization aspect, which is in no way involved. The worst thing I've seen at any D&D table is where a character was playing evil, right? And that was just uncomfortable because they were playing with ideas that are uncomfortable. So, hmm. What do y'all reckon? Father, do you want to go ahead or do you want me to go ahead? No, I suppose I, what, I, mean, I, I completely agree uh, with what's being said here. I suppose at what level, you know, do, you know, films or other media 
play with that same kind of idea of divination? Um, and where does that become problematic? And I suppose that touches on a little bit of what Father was asking in terms of, you know, celebration of Halloween, you know, writ large. I mean, I'm generally in favor of, you know, people putting on fancy dress and going out and having a good time and so forth. That whole element I don't think is at all problematic. But is there an, a way that the occult as a theme can start to become problematic if it's kind of entered into or engaged on a certain level, even beyond the idea of direct divination through kind of components like with tarot? Or whatever. Is the, can, can the occult become too much of a fix, fixation in a story that it, it becomes dangerous? Yes, I would say absolutely, yes. Um, and, you know, the a fascination, uh, there can be an unhealthy fascination with Halloween. And I know atheists who have done this, right? They, mm-hmm. um, they use it as a way, it looks to me like it, it's used as a way to express their unhealthy relationship with death, right? Um, and there's no, there's, they're not taking on the aspects of demons. There's none of that kind of witchcraft going on, but it's still incredibly unhealthy, right? Um, mostly it's just people dressing up and, and having fun, right? Um, but much depends on the spirit of a thing. Something can, the same act can be done with two people. It, for one, it can be a sin that separates them from the holy. And for another, it can actually, you know, increase it. So what is the spirit that's being entered into? And there are some things that, that people are in an unhealthy place have no business messing with. If you're in a dark place, don't watch a depressing movie. You know, mm-hmm. if you're mm-hmm. you're tempted by, by evil, don't be don't watch movies that um, that show evil that that has no repentance. So it's tough. Um, and if you have questions, you know, you're in a community mm-hmm. and, you know, you'll you'll have a pastor as part of that community who will give you guidance. And sometimes it'll be just a straight, you know no Halloween's terrible for you. And other times it'll be, well, tell me about what you're planning on doing and why, right? And they'll enter into a conversation. Um, and then, and then have that conversation with them, right? Because there are poor ways to do things just like, you know, for me, marriage is a, is a great blessing, but if I did it poorly, you know, it could be to my damn nation as well as to the, to the poor woman I torture. Right. Um, so, and, and community helps with that. It helps you understand what, you know, going back to this idea of a grand narrative, what is our part in the economy of salvation? What is our part in this great, you know, <laughs> hero's journey or whatever, you, however you want to summarize it. Uh, and uh, I, I think one of the reasons why some people are, are worried about Halloween is because they worry that, parishioners don't have a sense of um, the the reality of of cosmology, the reality of spiritual uh, warfare, spiritual temptation. And what they see is um, a delight in that, you know, um, a flirtation with it. And on Lord of Spirits, Father Stephen and Father Andrew did a good job of, of changing that frame of, you know, this is, we are mocking, we are mocking the, the demons, the witches that have been defeated in Christ in his death and resurrection. That's what we're doing. We're mocking them. You know, we're, we're not, 
And, and to the extent you are doing that, then it's a, you know, it's a wonderful act. If you're, if you're, if you're not, if you're trying to turn back the clock, <laughs> you're on the losing side of this, <laughs> this story, right? You don't yeah. want to, you don't want to play that part. <laughs> so the one situation that I have once that I found myself in one time in my life, I think is a great, is a great case study into where and when and how is the line between too far and okay. And I shared this story with you, Father Anthony, on, on the Prime Priest podcast we did uh, a while back, but I'm going to share it again here. Um, so many of our listeners will know that I did improv theater for a very long time. And when you're on stage doing improv, you don't necessarily, the rule is yes. And like you accept the world that's created and you contribute to that world. And then you create a story together. Honestly, D and D and improv are functionally the same. They're the same thing. They're really doing the exact same thing. Anyways, that's a whole other conversation, but um, I, but, but normally I, I was part of a team where you actually, you can lay out things that you're uncomfortable with, right? We would have those conversations being like, I don't want to kiss anybody. I don't want to be kissing anybody on stage, right? Okay. Everyone agrees. So like, we know where each other's lines are, right? Like, I don't want to be giving a piggyback to anybody. I just physically, I don't want to be doing that. Sure. You draw the lines. There's this one scene we're doing, we're performing. And uh, we, the, the story took place in a town called Illumination, that's the name of the town. And there was a community event happening, which was a witch hunt. So it makes for a great, uh, great story. But I find I found myself, me and another character were attempting to call up the spirit of a dead witch. And we were performing a seance to call up the spirit of a dead witch. And as I was doing it, I had this thought came into my head. It goes, wait a minute. <laughs> What if this works? What if this works? <laughs> I was like, it was one of those like crystallizing moments of like, I, I actually don't know where the line is. Like, I don't know on what side of the line I am right now. And honestly, like looking back on it, I'm like, I'm still not exactly sure what side of the line I was on. Or yeah, so maybe I'll throw it uh, to both of you fathers. Uh, when, when I share a story like that, like, does that... I guess, what are the tensions between what, what makes something over the line or not over the line? And maybe in your opinion, was what I did over the line or, or not over the line? Well, the, the real question there is, you know, do the demons know that it's just a game for us, right? You know, the, what, what would be the difference? Um, and do they know we're just putting on a play or we're just doing a film or we're just playing a game around a table? Um, and I'm all for what Father Andrew and Father Stephen talk about. I mean, that's much the origin of kind of Christian things around Halloween and dressing up like goblins and going and scaring away all the evil spirits, etc. was all about mocking and so forth. But I mean, quite rightly, we need to ask, you know, if there is and continues to be an evil spirit world, much as it has been emptied of its ultimate power, it's still operative on some level. Do we dare tempt it by engaging in things that for us are purely frivolous or just, you know, you're doing improv on a stage or you're just playing a game or just watching a film? But I mean, do they know <laughs> that's what we're doing? And, and Or is that not creating the same kind of opening as somebody who was, say, in a deeply dark place and just inviting them in, you know, because they need that at that moment, they think, you know, in this kind of dark way. Um, 
I mean, I don't think it's an easy question, you know, to answer. I think we ought always to be careful, right? You know, but I'm, I'm completely with Father Anthony. It's all about the intentionality. I think if we come from a strong place of union with Christ, you know, who has trampled on all of these powers, emptied them of, of, of all of their authority and, and so forth, we have nothing to fear. You know, in Christ, there's nothing to fear. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we open ourselves up unnecessarily to to kind of temptation or indeed to tempt the the demons with whatever you know i was like i liken the the time we're in to something c.s lewis said you know we're between d-day and ve day right so the the victory is absolutely assured but between d-day and ve day there were a lot of people died right there was risk there was a lot of work to be done yet, even though the ultimate war had been won. So we don't want to be one of those victims between D-Day and V-Day who, you know, inadvertently, you know, despite Christ having trampled down all these powers to have given ourselves over to them by our own volition or, you know, carelessness or, or whatever. But, um, you know, I, I don't think there's an easy answer to this. I think it does come back to some of that maturity that Father Anthony's talking about in terms of, you know, discernment and, you know, what the intention is uh, of things. But, um, you know, for, I, for one, would probably err on the side of caution with a lot of these these things and not to have counseled you, Father Yuri, to have entered into such a play acting, you know, at the time, because because who knows, right? I mean, that there are more things in heaven and earth than our, you know, philosophies uh, are made of or dream of. So, yeah, yeah. Father Anthony, did you want to share anything about that? Right. So, uh, um, you know, doing them as an actor is is what you're speaking of, right? And if you have a, a horror movie where you're showing how um, a force of oppression, a demon comes into a household through the use of something like Ouija, um, you know, the actors are going to, you might have the actors playing it, right? Um, <laughs> that's, man. And, and, this is, and this is slightly different in that it's a spontaneous improvisation right. yes. of the dialogue. This is not dialogue. I'm not play acting somebody else's dialogue. Right. I am spontaneously speaking these words. Composing it as you're speaking yeah. it. Yeah, I, no, I get that. I get that. Um, and we do have a warning, right? And you would, you would never, and this is more less, in my mind, less demonic because it's not invocating. But, you know, you would never kiss a woman that wasn't your wife mm -hmm. as part of a as part of a play right and to the extent that you know all, all rituals matter that's not to the extent that was a misplaced modifier right mm -hmm. so all rituals matter and when we do rituals that cannot be done you know in christ then we're doing ones that are working against our our salvation right and um so that that would be my question are you offering this to Christ? Can can you, as an actor, and in the case of a of a movie, you'd be like, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Maybe you could say, I'm I'm doing this to show the detrimental effects downstream of this sort of thing. And you know, I know that if I do this, that it it removes the ability of, of demons to act um, there, right? Um, so there there are certain situations where it could be done. Um, but man, yeah, I'd be way conservative on this. Um, and yeah, 
And I don't, we don't want to take the, the kissing or the sex analogy too far. Right. Um, you know, actors were not allowed to become, you had to give up your acting career back in the day. Right. If you were going to be saved, if you're going to live in Christ, um, it's, we don't have that now. Maybe we're going to the kind of culture where that's, that's gotta be part of the conversation. You know, when you say you're an actor, what do you mean? Right. Um, my friend Deacon Tim Kelleher, he's an actor, but he would never take those roles. So uh, context, context does matter. Intent does matter. And these things are not like spells, right? So um, when we, you know, if, if I do this, but, you know, I'm just a, a play actor doing it, am I really invoking the power of the precious and life-creating cross? <laughs> to a lesser extent, maybe I don't, I don't know what the ontology of that is. Um, so it's, it's a gray area, but anytime you were in a gray area, you always err on the side of being, being conservative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me give you another example of, mm-hmm. of something that was similarly uncomfortable. I was at a clergy conference and we were, um, they had decided that the, the activity was going to be to, to <laughs> reenact, uh, certain theological moments to try and, and remind people of, of dogmatic truths and how they were arrived at. And so they had, they had a priest uh, pretend he was Arius and he did a good job, but it was so um, antithetical to who he was. He immediately after he was done, you know, he, he prostrated himself in all sincerity before the Bishop and said, you know, you've, you've got to forgive and bless me. This it's, it's just, you know, blasphemy has this kind of, of reality that we don't want to be any, any part of. And you said we have a, a question? Yes, we do. We have a part one right here from Alyssa. Today, characters like orcs have the potential to be good or bad, and movies have classically evil villains that are simply misunderstood. Part two. What have we lost when our stories don't have true good and true evil anymore? Or is it better to see the subtleties and uh, potentialities in all creatures? Yeah, great question. I love it. Yeah, and it's a wonderful point, right? So, um, I think that that we do gain something, right? Because we we do not hate or dismiss or write off anyone. We are everyone's pastor. Every single person, no matter what they have done, we are to act in a way that will. Lord willing, you know, pull them out of their delusion and move them towards, towards our Lord. Uh, so that, that part is good, right? Um, it's bad to the extent, like now there's Rolling Stone sympathy for the devil, right? So now we can bring in that assumption towards demons. And as uncomfortable it makes us feel, you know, the church is still teaching that Demons, they made their decision, and there's something about their constitution that it will not allow repentance, the way that they experience time, whatever it is. I don't, I don't understand the, the uh, angelic mind, so I can't understand why that wouldn't work, because I tend to anthropomorphize, I tend to make everything into someone like me. Uh, so to the extent it draws us away from these, these truths, it's, it's dangerous. But on the other hand, the way we used to do it was also dangerous because it would, it would uh, tend, we'd, we would tend to write off people 
who were different from us. Right. So I love not all the times when we mess with our fairy tales and our mythologies, it's not always negative. Um, sometimes it's, it brings another layer to our understanding. So I'm ambivalent because I'm older. I miss clarity, <laughs> right? <laughs> because I, I have enough ambiguity in my life where I'm trying to figure out how to, how to pastor the moment, right? Sometimes you just want some pure good and evil dungeon crawl. Yeah. Yeah. I find, you know, I find the Harry Potter stories, um, quite point like, it jk rowling seems to be able to have her cake and eat it too when it comes to this question right because yeah. when you think of it in sort of broad strokes it sort of is this good it's this good versus evil story right like it's harry voldemort you know the the, the good versus the bad but on the other hand she carefully makes sure that you see the dividing line in through each human's heart yeah right including voldemort's Right. Like the last thing that Harry does in his conversation with Voldemort, spoiler alert, um, <laughs> he, he offers him an opportunity for repentance. Right. That's the last thing. That, that, of course, this is not in the movie. In the movie, they just want the, the clear, okay, he's going to kill him. And, that, and that's that. But in the book, they have this conversation. Right. And he offers the, the, he offers forgiveness. Right. And this opportunity for repentance. And of course, Voldemort doesn't take it. But even Voldemort, the most evil character there, you're able to see the kind of that dividing line in the human heart. So right. yeah, go ahead. And that, that scene in King's cross, you know, when Harry was whatever he was dead or, or whatever. Right. Um, and, and was it the, you know, just this pitiful figure that elicited sympathy. Right. Which right. was sort of the kind of a manifestation of Voldemort's spiritual state or right. whatever. I don't know exactly what it was, but something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. Yeah. Great point. Um, I could, uh, ask a whole lot of questions, but father Jeffrey, I'll turn it over to you. If there's anything you wanted to chat about. No, I was just going to weigh in a little bit on that point. Uh, Alyssa's question there. And uh, I think generally it's, it's better that we have, you know, this kind of a little bit more nuanced understanding of both hero and villain. And I think actually in the very best of ancient pre-modern literature, you know, we have that, that's actually what you find in a lot of cases. I mean, really, ultimately, in the Christian sense, there's only one hero, and that's God, right? Everybody else is an anti-hero. Everyone else is that reluctant hero, you know, even in the scriptures. I mean, they get heroes like Jonah, right? <laughs> you know, who are going off in completely the wrong direction, which is very much like a Han Solo or somebody else, you know, the kind of flawed um you know, hero character or, or, or whatever. Uh, so I think that that's good. I think maybe, you know, it was only recently and maybe Hollywood and maybe America that kind of made this very, very black and white understanding of, of, of good and evil, which actually is a kind of dualism that has more in common with Zoroastrianism or something than it does with Christianity, right? This idea, idea of pure darkness and pure light and the kind of warring, you know, darkness and, 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 and of, of evil and then the, the, the light of God and, and so forth. I mean, that's not the Christian story, right? In, in our story, nothing exists apart from by the grace of God, including all the things that maybe manifest themselves with malevolence and so forth. They wouldn't exist if God did not allow them to exist. We are not dualists on any way, shape, or form. And so 
I think that the subtlety of the kind of almost postmodern, you know, cinema or storytelling or whatever, where you know, nobody is quite so good, you know, because only ultimately God is, and and nothing evil is is not redeemable, um, is much much more in keeping with our Christian worldview than you know even Star Wars, you know, kind of is a Zoroastrian story, right? Rather than a, than a properly Christian one. And so I like the subtlety. I like the nuance. I like the, the I think bringing a little bit more of a complexity that was probably there in the ancient myths than, and, and, and less so in kind of modern Hollywood and so forth. Um, so Cam Hay has sent me an email with quite a long question and oh. I think it's worth reading it and just answering it. If that's okay with you fathers. Mm-hmm. Okay, here we go. Um, he says, sorry for this, probably way too long, but on the off chance you get this during the podcast, Father Anthony, thanks. Uh, here's the question. A friend of mine was recently the site manager at a movie set. The movie was a horror movie and was being partly filmed at an old Shriners hospital in an old part of Winnipeg. His job, among others, was to open and place up uh, in the morning open the place up in the morning and make sure everything was secure at night. You know, going down dark stone basement hallways at 1 a.m. by yourself. Who's not having fun? The first day there were two maintenance personnel that still check in on the building once a week to hand off the keys. Middle-aged German men, the type that aren't that suspicious. They gave him the key... Superstitious, sorry. They gave him the keys and told him that they always go together because the place is haunted. They won't do it alone. My friend was skeptical. After five days, he saw the maintenance guys again who asked him, quote, so is it haunted? End quote. His answer is not is a non sorry, is now unequivocally. Yes. One of the things that came up, however, is that these ghosts are not evil or they don't have negative energy. There is a boy who plays with a ball in a hallway, a doctor and a nurse who wander around like th- things like that. So are there neutral ghosts and spirits or spirit souls that aren't ready to go to the afterlife yet? Cued, uh, cue the ghost reference. After listening to Lord of Spirits episodes, I would see, it would seem to me that neutral or wandering spirits just can't be a thing. Sorry for the long question and great podcast so far. So, of course, this brings us to the voted topic that we would talk to you about, Father Anthony, which is ghosts and spirits. But I'll open it up to you. Yeah, so this is where I'm going to bring in some of my uh, materialism, right? Uh, and just to add a category. So the the categories that we get, um, like from Lord of Spirits, and both of them are my friends, and also I'm learning from them, right? Is uh, And also from writers, you know, Father Seraphim Rose, most popular among them in his religion of the future, where things are... Either there, there is, and I will, I will affirm that there are no neutral spirits, right? Um, all of the Elohim are, are part of one team or another, right? The angels have decided. And you get this, a little bit of this in, in C.S. Lewis, like in, um, at towards the end of uh, the, hidden, the Hidden Strength, right? Where the, the fairies are there and they're a little bit wild, but they're not like they were before Christ. Anyways, here's the thing that I want to add to that is not all the things that we perceive. See, they had a wonderful show on noetic vision, but not all the things that we see and interpret as spiritual data is real. Okay. And that doesn't mean that, that we're, you know, creating things. We're imagining these things. 
Um, but it is the case that we can experience things that are not there in any sense, material or spiritual, right? That the, and, um, this is one of the capabilities of, you know, the middle part of our mind, the, the wetware in between our ears is that it takes very little data and it creates a full picture for us. You know, when you study how the eyes work, we, we get a full picture of our environment, but the actual data that is coming in is not full. You know, it is, it is the wetware filling in the details based on expectation. Okay. So that wetware can be tricked. It's not just that it can be deceived by, you know, deceivers. It can just, it can just misfire. And this is off. I'm convinced that many of the experiences that people have that they claim are paranormal or spiritual, this is what is going on. It is um, an, an, a subconscious automatic instinctive um, filling in of the gaps and the data that the, the brain has been given. Right. So you're walking through a graveyard, right? If you live in a, a, a world that is full, right. And not just material, there are certain expectations about things that can occur in graveyards. And so if something that a pure materialist heard a, a twig breaking, you know, um, a pure materialist would, would say, Oh, you know, squirrel or something. But for those of us whose, whose, um, knowledge of the world is more full, uh, the brain can then have a full scene of some kind of spiritual reality that is, that is being part of this scene. And, you know, that's, that's a big problem. This is why humility is, is such an important virtue is because we, in, in many situations, we cannot trust our, our brains, right? The best part of our wisdom is when we are quiet and just, you know, in humble adoration of God in, in the heart, right? In, in the quietness of the noose. Once you move out of that, the perceptions and the thoughts of the mind, the, the sense data given to us by the passions, these are notoriously unreliable, right? So that would be, that would be my, kind of my first response, right? And that's never satisfying to people because they'll say, no, but this is what I saw. This is what I know I saw. And they've got, not only do they have a full scene, they also have a full, you know, cosmology there to drive it. It doesn't mean they're right. Just because you can tell a consistent story doesn't mean that your story's right. So we come into all of these things, not just our own spiritual state, but everything with humility, right? I, I, I could be wrong about this. So yeah, did I hear that somebody wanted to say something? So that that's, so is it haunted? Okay. So maybe it is, maybe it's not. And this is my, you know, me saying probably not. <laughs> it's probably not. But if it is, what would it be? There's another question. And it is certainly the case that it it could be, you know, demonic. The church is does not have a single opinion. There is no single teaching about ghosts in the Orthodox Church. 
there are a variety of opinions. St. John Chrysostom did not believe that there were ghosts. And when he homilized on the demons at Gardines, right, he said the reason why these demons had driven the men into the cemeteries was so that they could reinforce the myth that, that cemeteries are haunted by ghosts. And when he's explaining the, the witch at, at Endor, he says that it's not the ghost of Samuel that comes up. It's a demon imitating him because there are no ghosts. Of course, it's a demon, right? That's, that's how much he's against it. But you get other stories. Um, St. Gregory, the dialogist, um, I, I don't know the isnat on this. I don't know, you know if this is apocryphal, but it's attributed to him. He, when he is telling a story about um, why it is important to pray for the dead, um, he has basically a ghost story where a priest after liturgy would go to the, to the bath areas to, um, to help heal his body. And he had an attendant there who was very attentive, right? And come to find the, that attendant ends up being a ghost, right? Who through that attentiveness ends up being released from his ghost, right? So, so don't be so sure either way, because people wiser than us have come down on either side of this. Um, I have something to say, but Father Jeffrey, do you want to jump in at all? Yeah, I mean, I'm 100% on board with the, you know, the view taken in terms of uh, the way human beings receive and interpret information, right? Um, again, it's a kind of myth of modernity that we have this kind of objective camera eye, camera lens view of the world. We just take in information and process raw data and, and that's all it is. We, we, we've we lost under modernity that real understanding that everything is interpretation all the way down, right? And that was certainly the, the pre-modern understanding. When the Gospels themselves tell a story about what it is to observe with your eyes for a period of time the incarnate God and yet nothing out of that. You know, you can see everything and know nothing, Right. So it's not about observation and data and, and taking in that. It's all about interpretation. It's only once you actually open the scriptures and you break the bread, you do those ritual actions of liturgy in community that you are given access to fundamentally truth. And, and truth is a ultimately relationship with a, with a person. And so I just wanted to kind of build on that and say that what we really need to lean into is the, is our, deep understanding that that truth is an interpreted thing in community right we need one another we can't just rely on our 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 singular you know senses and the sensory data that comes to us to to know anything we need the tradition of the church we need the community from from all the ages we need the community that we belong to and we sacramentally participate in where the scriptures are proclaimed and the gospel announced that's where we have access to 
to kind of understanding, not in our kind of, uh, you know, I, I loved all of that description of what happens in our brains when we take in, in data. And it can be so easily tricked, so easily deceived. Advertisers know this. Uh, you know, all kinds of uh, optical illusions can deceive us and, and so forth. So it's, it's only natural that people see UFOs, they see ghosts, they, they see, they, they, they become very unreliable witnesses at, uh, at tragedies and accidents and so forth. I mean, there's just, there's no solution to this apart from we join together in a community of faith where the tradition is received and we can ultimately depend on our interdependent kind of understanding of things and, and access to the truth, which is, is, is God. But, you know, we, we cannot at all trust any of these accounts. And I, th I think there's a fair number of them embedded in aspects of, of the stories of our tradition and everything that, that again, are probably outliers. And they're just kind of singular stories that sit there. We, they get carried on. And I, I wouldn't try to build a whole theology out of those no. either. And, oh, no. and I think an example of this to bring in, you know, a really big bugbear here is, I mean, there's the whole um, overstating of the toll house thing has, yeah. I think, been a, a particular manifestation of that, you know, where, you know, the, this fascination with with this sort of thing. And there's ghost stories attendant upon that too, about, you know, the way souls hang around for a certain number of, of days after death. And the the taking out of the ritual, a kind of ghost story is, is probably taking that thing too far where it was intended for other purposes and teaching and, and, you know, inciting people to repentance and so forth. It had a whole context, which made a lot of sense, but then, you know, it, just everything Father Anthony said make, makes perfect sense here. We really do need um, to be a little bit more humble about our own sensory perception of things and to rely on one another and ultimately our deep tradition of, of truth and so forth. I, I want to present... <laughs> I want to present a part of our Orthodox tradition in a slightly different way to try and maybe engage some further conversation about ghosts. Okay, so there are feasts in our Orthodox Church which celebrate ghost stories. Yes. Uh, for well, I mean, like for example, let, let, I'm totally reframing this, but let's oh, say no. he, I'm with he, you. Okay, let's say the the protection of the mother of God. I'm not sure right. if that's what you were thinking of. Yep. But this is a story in which people in a church saw somebody who has died walking in the space, turning around and showing her protection to the community. Right? And then there's also stories throughout all of our tradition of people seeing uh, the the community of saints in inside yes. of the church. Is is that not like how is that not a ghost story. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And you know, that's not the way that we frame it. We'd say, yeah, but but the fact is if your if your definition of a ghost story is someone who has reposed <laughs> in our timeline and then mm -hmm. comes back in some kind of a spirit form, that that sounds like a ghost story, right? I would say um that's different than a haunting, right? Um and you know, it's it's seems to be specific to saints, right? So, um, I, I love that point. If you want to develop, we can. But yes, that is oh, when when I give talks on ghosts, I bring that up. I say yes, it is a part of our tradition, but it's 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 this is it, right? It's, and I mean, in in one sense, though, it's not unique to saints because people see 
the ghosts of dead people that aren't saints. Right. And like I what, go- what makes, what, what makes Christians seeing dead other Christians yes. different than seeing my dead grandmother or something like that. Right. So, well, I don't know. Maybe your grandmother is, is a saint. You know, we don't, we don't know any right. of that. And it also could be the case, um, speculate, pure speculation here, but it could be the say, case that your guardian angel is, is trying to make a comforting um, gesture towards you. And then this interprets that as the most comforting thing they know, which is your, your grandmother. Right. So there are all kinds of things that they could be going on. But the reason why um, our tradition describes saints who have come um, and responded in this way physically or, you know, seeming uh, is, is because our understanding of the, the afterlife, you know, of, of when we don't even know exactly how that works, right? Um, how it is that the saints come back. I've never heard it explained in a dogmatic way, right? But, but one of the questions, I don't want to lose this part of the question, right, is can places be haunted? Because that's another part of the question, right? Because this is a specific place that, that you know, his, his friend was at where, you know, you had these recurring visions, um, I guess, seen by different people. So is it possibly possible for, for a place to have a memory from the past? And in the Old Testament, we have examples where things were tainted, not just tainted, like where they remember they were used for evil purposes, but then it describes how demons came and inhabited it. Right. And you might not recognize the biblical language. Um, and they'll use words like pelicans and stuff, but what they're talking about is um, how it became the, uh, you know, inhabit habitation of demons. It became desert again, um, unsettled. And, but as far as this kind of haunting, where it seems like, you know, it's just someone maybe <laughs> uh, playing the way they did or walking down the hallway they did 50 years ago. Can a place have a memory like that that's just available um, at certain times? Um, we, we really don't know that. I mean, there are, there are people that do have senses of things and not all of them are holy people, right? There are prophets that seem to just have senses. Um, they're able to, to plug into things. Um, but that, that's a strange thing to be able to see, right. Is, is a doctor who walked the halls 20 years ago. Um, and I would, this isn't what I'd necessarily say to that person. I tried to figure out where they were spiritually and so on, but as an outside observer, I'd be like, yeah, that was probably just a, a misfiring of the brain, you know? And, once you hear that this is happening, like the night watchman says, by the way, this place is haunted, right? In this particular way. And you're walking down that hallway. Of course, you're going to see that. How could, how could you not? And, and if, you know, maybe something worse, right? Well, we are two and a half minutes over, but Father Jeffrey, I'll let you share anything if there's anything you want to and then we can no i have nothing to add to that so i just want to thank you both for this uh wonderful conversation yeah i this could go on forever i'd love it (laughs) cam says great episode uh i sure hope that uh that's a nice dwarven ale you're enjoying in that (laughs) mug father anthony (laughs) cheers
<laughs> I really enjoy y'all's company. Thank you so much. Yeah, this is really great. Okay, well, thank you so much. Thank you to our patrons, and we, we will see you next time. Enacting the Kingdom is a patron-supported show, and if you're not a patron, you're only getting half of everything we create. If you'd like to join our growing community of supporters, please go to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom. Your patronage goes a long way to keeping this show going. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.